I'd just gotten out of the hospital after a few weeks, and I was back at my university campus in one of those motorized scooters, kind of like an armchair on wheels with this little steering apparatus. It could get like 10 miles per hour, so that thing had some speed. I was scooting over to my first class after my surgeries, and my professor found me just kind of aimlessly circling the building my class was in. It was an undergrad class about environmental law, and it was taught by an environmental lawyer. He asked me why I wasn't in class yet, and I explained that after circling the building a few times, I just couldn't find any ramp to get in. Only stairs. He looked down at me through his big mustache, and then he said, Want me to sue him for you? I laughed, but inside I was realizing how much my life had changed, and how much more it was going to. I'm Grace Nosick, and this is the inaugural episode of Planet Potluck, a podcast sharing the stories of the joy, hope, and community people find in the climate fight. Today, on this first episode, I'm going to start with my own story. It might not sound like the most joyful story at first. In fact, it's about to get really heavy. But I promise it gets there. It's not easy for me to make myself vulnerable like this, to lay parts of my life bare to the world. So why make this podcast? I get the sense from talking to friends, family, strangers, because I do talk to a lot of strangers about climate change, that many people think climate change is like being on the Titanic, barreling towards an iceberg. If you don't know how you can engage and you don't think you can do anything about it, why think about the iceberg? There's a real dissonance to the world. Sometimes I feel like I live in two realities. You read about the science and researchers saying that we've got three years to peak global greenhouse gas emissions or we risk all of these profoundly dangerous consequences, especially for those already living at the margins of society. And then you kind of come back to the real world and you don't see that urgency reflected. And then it's hard to take the threat seriously when nobody else seems to be. But at the risk of extending this boat metaphor too far, every bit that you do to change the course of that ship barreling towards the iceberg matters. It really does. This podcast is my attempt to lessen the dissidence, to recenter the attention away from the iceberg, which rightly gets a lot of attention. It's an iceberg in the path of a ship. To all of the people on the ship working furiously in so many diverse ways to make sure we turn in time. Regular people. I think it's powerful to hear those stories to know how many people are doing that work, how many different ways there are to join the climate fight. So as I mentioned, I'll start today with part of my personal story, describing the work that I do and the joy that I find in it. In each following episode, I'll talk to one of my friends or friends of friends who I found through doing this work. They'll share how they contribute to the movement and what gives them hope. And then every episode will end with a call to action, a step you can take to join the movement. So... Back to the beginning. Why was I in the hospital in the first place? It all started with a soccer game. I loved soccer growing up. Have you ever seen soccer players juggle? Bouncing the ball off of shins, quads, foreheads, shoulders, without ever letting it touch the ground. In university, I could juggle essentially to infinity, hundreds and hundreds of touches until I got tired or bored. I could dance with a soccer ball. Spring of my sophomore year, I was playing in an intramural soccer game, and I just collapsed to the ground, screaming. My legs were in agony. It felt like the insides of my legs were exploding outwards. 
I was taken to an emergency room, going out of my mind in pain and shrieking in the back of a police car. When I arrived, everyone looked at me askance. With my sobs of agony, I was disturbing the quiet group of injured people waiting patiently to be seen. I waited for three hours, thinking, when I could think, that it must be illegal to leave someone in this kind of pain. I just kept clutching at people, begging for pain medication. Several times, a nurse came over to tell me firmly that I must be quiet. I tried to comply. I really did. I tried to be quiet. But it felt like balloons were expanding under my skin, like my legs might literally explode at any moment. But when I finally saw a doctor, he thought I was exaggerating, and he sent me home with some pain medication. It was Friday, and I suffered until Sunday in such primal, unthinkable pain until I was finally dragged back to another emergency room. There, after a round of emergency surgeries, I woke up to the news that a muscle, a muscle that was vital to my ability to walk, had died and been removed from my leg to be replaced by this huge, garish scar stretching from my ankle to my knee. That my nerve endings had been dying and that if I hadn't returned to the emergency room when I did, my body would have failed. And finally, that if the first emergency room had taken me seriously, none of this would have happened. But nobody in that first hospital believed me. To them, I was just another woman exaggerating. And I was helpless against that disbelief, even though I was screaming at the top of my lungs. When I think of sitting there in an emergency room, my nerve endings literally dying inside of me and being shushed by the very people who were supposed to help me, being treated like I was the one disturbing the peace because I was shrieking in agony, it makes me think how wrong and mixed up this world can be. For years, thinking about the needlessness of my loss, if just one person had taken me seriously that day in the emergency room, I could have walked away unscathed. That made me feel like I was living in an upside-down world. I get that feeling a lot these days. Communities around the world on the front lines of the fight against climate change are testifying about their pain and the pain of their lands and territories. Peaceful protesters are being met with tanks and militarized police, being treated like radicals and terrorists when they stand for clean air, clean water, a livable climate, an upside-down world. A few years ago, almost a decade after my initial round of surgeries, I was at a Christmas party with my family. A kind-looking man said hello excitedly. He knew my name and asked if I remembered him. He didn't, but I quickly found out that he had been my soccer coach when I was nine or ten. Eyes shining, he started telling me his favorite stories about my feats on the soccer field and explaining that he loved me because how I used to careen fearlessly around the field, throwing myself joyfully into the game. He said it was terrifying and beautiful to watch. My knees buckled. I grabbed at hors d'oeuvres so this gentleman wouldn't notice my tears. The ghost of that girl, who flew so effortlessly down the field, when now even kicking a ball would be painful. She knocked me over for a moment. But later that night, I found myself smiling. 
I realized I wasn't that girl on the field anymore, but I am still throwing myself at challenges with wild abandon. I've channeled that ferocity into climate work. It felt for a moment like that ghost of my past self, that nine-year-old girl, was grinning at me across the decades. I've worked on environmental issues my whole life, but for years I shied away from doing climate work. It felt too depressing, too overwhelming. But when I was in law school, I heard a talk from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He shared hopeful climate stories, all the diverse ways people were engaging in the fight and making huge strides. And it just triggered something in me. If there was hope, if we could make a difference, this was the fight I wanted to be in. My injury and the memory of feeling alone that night in the emergency room, my cries ignored by all around me, gave me extra urgency as I dove back into climate work. And I found something I never expected. Joyful community that fully anchored me in this world. Sometimes I compare the climate movement to the Gryffindor common room from Harry Potter. A group of friends coming together to face an existential threat. There is love, laughter, grief, tragedy, wild hope, and above all, community. I've tried my hand at all different kinds of ways to advance climate justice. I'm a lawyer by trade. Right now I'm getting my PhD in law, studying climate change and climate law. But I've tried telling climate stories through young adult eco-fantasy and stop-motion film. I've worked on policy. I've gone to protest and done some organizing. Through those experiences, I've met lots of people who have become friends. Students, professors, organizers, lawyers, activists on the front lines, scientists, engineers, musicians. In the last year, I found a new community that's been bringing me so much joy. The Sustainability Collective at the University of British Columbia. The Collective is a coalition of more than a dozen student sustainability groups on campus, pooling our energy and resources to fight for climate justice and other issues. The group formed in August 2017 to advocate for climate change and climate justice to be a key focus in the University of British Columbia's strategic plan. It took us a few months to get our bearings. This group composed of graduate students and undergraduates from across faculties, engineering, law, economics, geography, science, business, and more. But everyone showed up with such sincerity and enthusiasm. Only seven months after forming, we held a climate town hall on campus, bringing together hundreds of students, staff, and faculty to brainstorm creative climate action strategies. I'm a PhD student. My schedule is busy, but flexible. But watching these undergrad students juggling school, work, the running of their own clubs, seeing them stay up until all hours of the night planning the town hall, working on curriculum reform, was so energizing. To be 21 years old and to have the empathy and initiative to pour your free time into this fight, it's pretty magical to watch. Now we're working on implementing some of the exciting ideas from the town hall, including creating a climate hub at UBC. Other students have been asking how they can get involved. I think they can see the kindness and energy the collective shows up with, and it's infectious. Actually, some collective folks have been helping me with this podcast. The funny thing about befriending wonderful people is that they tend to have wonderful friends. For every person I've met in the climate movement, they've introduced me to so many more. Do you remember that game Minesweeper? How you would click on one tile and it would reveal a whole slew of winning tiles? That's kind of what it felt like and still feels like, this ever-expanding community of wonderful people, introducing me to more wonderful people. 
Each episode, we'll be talking to some of this wonderful community I found, and then their friends and friends of friends, a few of the millions of people bringing their energy and skill sets to the climate fight. We'll explore how climate connects us and why we do what we do. We'll also end each episode with a climate call to action. Maybe you're already one of the millions of people bringing your passions and skills to the climate fight. Maybe you want to be. Come join Dumbledore's Climate Army. Today's call to action is actually two related calls to action. It's the first episode, so I feel like I can go big. The first is to reach out to somebody right now, right now, don't wait. A friend who's already interested in climate change or one you think cares about social and environmental issues. Ask if they want to go to a climate justice event with you. Sign up to 350.org together or one of the other groups listed on our website, planetpotluck.com. It adds so much love and support to show up to the climate movement with a friend. The second call to action is to vote. Look up all of your upcoming local, state, provincial, and federal elections, circle them in your calendar, and commit to looking at candidates' climate justice platforms. Remember the friend from the first call to action, your climate buddy? Make them your voting buddy, too. Have a friend or relative that you always vote with so you can hold each other mutually accountable. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to Planet Potluck. And remember, we're all in this together. You're listening to Planet Potluck, written by me, Grace Nosek. There's lots more to learn at planetpotluck.com.